0: Just by way of recap, mostly for those out in podcast land, what I'm working out of is James Kugel's book, The Great Poems of the Bible. He is a Jew, not a rabbi. He believes that the scriptures are scripture and so forth. And he is a professor of Hebrew literature at Harvard and a visiting professor of Bible studies at Bar-Illion in Israel. And he's a former poetry editor for Harper's Magazine. So he is well qualified to write about the Hebrew Bible. He's also well qualified to write about poetry. Probably knows the New Testament better than we do. He's a real scholar of biblical and Semitic peoples in that region. So the way he's organized his book is he has typically his own translation of a psalm, although when he did Psalm 23, he said, I can't do better than King Jimmy. So he used King James. But in Psalm 29, he's got his own. And then he has an accompanying article with each. And this one is going to go all over the place. So I'm going to read his translation. And this article is The Death of Baal. He's talking about how the entire world, especially in that region, is pagan and Israel arising and becoming monotheistic is a big deal. They're unique in the region until you start getting into Islam and Christianity. And of course, Christianity is just an outshoot of Judaism. But what he talks about is the pagan mindset, and one of the places he's going to go is where Elijah takes on the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. So that's one of the places he's going to be. So let's read Psalm 29. We'll leap off from there. This is James Kugel's translation. And follow along in whatever translation you have. Give the Lord, O sons of the mighty, give the Lord glory and strength. Give the Lord his own name's glory. Bow down to the Lord in holy splendor. Listen, the Lord is over the waters. The glorious God has thundered. The Lord is over the deep. Listen. The Lord is in strength. Listen. The Lord is in splendor. Listen. The Lord shatters cedars. How the Lord shatters cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, Sarion like a little cub. Listen. The Lord shoots forth sparks. Listen. The Lord makes the wilderness shake. The Lord shakes the land of Kaddish. Listen. The Lord makes the oak trees quiver as he strips the forest bare. And in his temple all say, glory. The Lord is enthroned above the flood. The Lord will continue forever, king. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. So there's his translation. And the place where he sort of takes off on his essay is in the first line. And let me give you another translation. My first line says, Ascribe to the Lord, O divine beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. What Kugel translated is, Give the Lord, O sons of the mighty, give the Lord glory and strength. His question that he starts off with are, Who are these sons of the mighty? I believe that it's Elohim, but let me check. So, benign Elohim, he translates as sons of the mighty. It could also be translated sons of the gods. And his question is, who are these? He starts off talking about the world at the time of the Psalms and before. In that part of the world, and in fact, in most parts of the world, paganism was the operative theology. The idea was that Everything has a cause. Stuff doesn't just happen. There's a cause for everything. Wind, sunshine, failure of crops, pregnancy, all of those things have something that causes them. In fact, one of the things that he quotes is in Ecclesiastes 11.5. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with a child, So you do not know the works of God who makes everything. The idea is when a woman gets pregnant and delivers a child, we to this day have no idea how that child gets a spirit. In other words, they're born and they are unique individuals and they are spiritual beings and physical beings and with modern science we can sort of understand some of the physical processes that take place during pregnancy but we got no idea how the spark gets put in there and you have a new soul or a new spirit that comes into the world no idea how that works so ecclesiastes is saying the same thing but anyway the point he makes in his essay is in that world everything had a cause and if you didn't know what the cause was. In other words, if you, you see a tree moving and you see the wind, okay, the wind is moving the tree. Uh, very clear. You pick something up and move it around, you're the cause. Well, there are stuff that happens that there isn't any obvious cause for. So the operative thing then became to associate it with gods, small g. And the way it was regarded in those days was when you, for example, had a storm. And in that region, Baal was the god of the storm. So when you had a storm, it was literally Baal present in the storm. Furthermore, every culture, especially in that region, had gods that they worshipped. And you've all read the scripture, and you know know, some of the Babylonian gods, some of the Canaanite gods. And the point is, the world was so convinced of the existence of gods that they would take a great many valuable resources and dedicate them to the worship of such gods. You'd have a village sacrifice multiple sheep or oxen, grain offerings, etc., So these were valuable resources, especially in a pre-industrial age when in order to grow grain, somebody had to get behind a plow and stare at the back end of a donkey for a while while he plowed the field and planted. I mean, it was a labor-intensive effort. And so grain and animals and so forth were valuable. To give you an example, I don't enjoy movies anymore because they have become orgies of CGI effects. You have people jumping over and out of stuff, you have explosions all over the place, and it's all computer generated. In other words, it's all inexpensive. Nobody had to become a stuntman and become somebody who could literally jump out of a second story building. Anybody ever watched an old Buster Keaton movie? Anybody know who Buster Keaton was? Buster Keaton was an actor in the silent movie era. And I will suggest that you go to a computer and you look up some of the Buster Keaton movies. They're all silent, and a lot of it seems really hokey now. But the thing that Buster Keaton did is he did his own stunts, and he did them in one take, and he did them real time. There's one, for example, where the damsel is floating down the river and about to go over the falls. And he steps into the water just at the falls and he grabs her by the arm and pulls her to safety. That was done in real time with two real human beings and one take. So when I say that the thing about idol worship in the ancient world These were real resources that people were spending because they thought it was worthwhile to worship these deities. This was not some CGI effect that some king was putting on a show for the peasants. This was really expensive. And furthermore, the cultures at that time thought that those expenditures were absolutely worth it. I had a friend when I used to be in the Episcopal Church, and he was talking about pagan Rome he says well nobody actually believed in those gods those were just myths and I looked at him and says you have no evidence for that I didn't say it this way to him at the time but those people were willing to expend tremendous valuable resources in the care and servicing of their gods this is not something that you would do if it was just a fake put on for the peasants they believe this stuff So when Kugel is talking about sons of the mighty, or benai Elohim, or sons of God, benai Elim, sorry not benai Elohim, it's benai Elim. But the point is El is Hebrew for God, small g. All sorts of Hebrew names have El in them because God is doing something. Bethel, for example, is the house of God, those kinds of things. So One of the things he said is that late rabbinic commentary on this talks about them as being angels. In other words, sons of the mighty ones. He's not sure. So the first thing that is happening in this psalm is that the psalmist is saying that Jehovah is in fact someone to whom all lesser beings, whatever they are, whether they're angels or other deities, are subservient to. That's the first thing that's being said there, is that Jehovah is superior to all of these. The second thing that he says, and I'm taking his scholarship for this, I haven't verified this myself, not that I'm sure I would be qualified to do so anyway, is the phenomenon. That are ascribed to pagan gods are regarded as manifestations of the God Himself. As I said earlier, when you have a big thunderstorm come through, it's as if Baal Himself is going over the land. And for Jehovah, that is not the case. Jehovah, in biblical understanding, causes things to happen but he is not in those things. The poster child for that is in 1 Kings 19. And you've all been through Torah cycles, and this is one of the stories that we read every Torah cycle, so you should be familiar with it. What we're talking about is um, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And what happens in the confrontation is they take two bulls, And one of them is dedicated to Baal and the other one is dedicated to Jehovah. And the priests of Baal get first shot. And the bet is, if you will, that the God who answers by fire, in other words, lightning comes down from heaven and consumes the offering, he's the real God. The reason that this is such a powerful test is because Baal is a God of a storm. You're not asking Baal to do an earthquake because that's not his department. His department is storms and lightning. So the idea then that Elijah is challenging Baal in the area where he is responsible sets up the challenge properly. And of course, you all know the story. The priests of Baal dance around and scream and yell and cut themselves with lances so that their blood flows. And by the way, This is one of the attractions of pagan religions. It's really a great show. You know, everybody's standing around watching, and these priests are jumping up and down, and they're cutting themselves, and blood is flowing, and they're yelling, and it's a spectacle. I mean, that's one of the attractions, if you will, of paganism. My son Matthew said this. We were talking after a prayer. One of the attractions of Nazism is they put on a really good show. Have you looked at World War II pictures of the Nazi rallies? You've got masses of people. You've got these big banners. You've got bands. You've got people giving grand speeches. The whole thing is a great spectacle. They've got great uniforms. Nothing dresses better than a Nazi officer. So what you have is disaffected people in the United States. Look at that, and they see the romantic side of it you know, the spectacles and the cool-looking uniforms and all of that kind of stuff, and they find it attractive. So anyway, back to Elijah. The deal is you have this grand spectacle and Baal doesn't show up. And then, of course, Elijah calls upon Jehovah and fire comes down from heaven and consumes the offering. So then we get to 1 Kings 19 when Elijah has been run out of town by Jezebel, and he's gone to the mountain of the Lord, Mount Sinai, and he's standing in front of the tent. I'm going to pick it up in verse nine and a half, and I'm reading out of the Tanakh. There he went into a cave, and there he spent the night. Then the word of the Lord came to him. He said to him, Why are you here, Elijah? He replied, I am moved by zeal for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to the sword. I alone am left, and they are out to take my life. Come out, he called, and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And lo, the Lord passed by, and there was a great and mighty wind, splitting mountains and shattering rocks by the power of the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind an earthquake... But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a soft murmuring sound. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his mantle about his face and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And then a voice addressed him, Why are you here, Elijah? So the whole point of this is you have the contest with the prophets of Baal. And pagan belief was that. When you had a storm, the God himself showed up, and so that gets shut down by Elijah when Jehovah is the one who consumes the sacrifice. And then we come down to 19, where it explicitly says that God is not in those phenomena. It's a direct refutation of pagan belief. God causes those things, but he is not in them. So. What you have here in Psalm 29, is it starts off with an assertion that Jehovah is supreme over all the mighty ones, all divine beings, whether they be angels, other gods, whatever they are. And then it goes and lists what happens when Jehovah causes things to happen. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of the Lord thunders. Notice the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The Lord over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is power. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf. Let me read it again out of cool. Give the Lord his own name's glory. Bow down to the Lord in holy splendor. Listen. The Lord is over the waters. The glorious God has thundered. The Lord is over the deep. Listen. The Lord shatters cedars. How the Lord shatters cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf. So the idea here is not only is he not in these phenomenon, he's causing the phenomenon, but he's not in them. It's also the case that he doesn't ever appear. Because one of the hallmarks of pagan religions is idols. Every one of these gods has got some kind of a figurine, a statue, or something that is the God and is worshipped. Jehovah specifically forbids that kind of thing. So he's very different in that sense. Today, our problem is finding God. People are searching for God. In the Old Testament, that is not the case. God finds people when he wants them. So you have, for example, Manoah. So Manoah's wife is out doing something in the field, minding her own business, and this angelic being shows up, and they're not looking for God. She becomes pregnant and so forth, and they realize that they're dealing with an angelic being. Same thing with Gideon. Gideon's thrashing wheat in a wine press because he's afraid of the Midianites. And God shows up and says, hey, you, mighty warrior. And he's, who, what, where, where? And God then raises him up. So God shows up to people, in angelic beings, pre-incarnate appearances of Yeshua. But people in the Old Testament are not looking for God. They are living with the knowledge of God and they regard obedience to the Word of God as simply being the way that one exists. The other thing about the Old Testament is there's virtually no theology in the Old Testament. The actions of God are recorded. It's very clear he exists, it's very clear he's involved, his actions are recorded, but you will not, for example, find the concept of the Trinity anywhere in the Old Testament. Now, I am a firm Trinitarian, I'm not casting doubt on that. I firmly believe in the Trinity, but that's something that has been figured out thousands of years after the events that are being written here in the Psalms. The milieu then was that God exists. He expects you to follow his instructions because his instructions are him in a sense. And occasionally he will reach in there and he'll grab somebody and make use of him or anoint him to do something or something like that. But the idea of trying to find God, seeking God, looking for God, that doesn't exist back then. There isn't any concept of studying about God. God just is. And the Psalms describe his characteristics. He's mighty. His voice makes Lebanon shake. He's mightier than anybody else he's done great and wonderful things and all of this is by way of simply describing who is being worshipped it is not by way of studying who is being worshipped this is a song of praise this is a song that is composed to be sung in praise of god it is not a study of god in fact let's go to exodus and let's pick it up in Exodus 24, verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel ascended, and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there was the likeness of a pavement of sapphire, like the very sky for purity. Notice they don't describe him, they cast their eyes down. And they are looking at his feet. There's no description of God here. It's simply a description of the pavement on which his feet are. And then when you go to Moses, when Moses asks to see the Lord, what does God say? No, all you're going to be able to do is get a sideways glance at me and maybe at my back as I pass by because nobody is going to see me face to face. In other words... No images. It is not the case that you're going to be able to remember what I look like and start making metal images and selling them at tiki tacky gift shops. The cherubim have wings that cover their eyes. Nobody looks at God. And in fact, when we get to the description of God, and let's go to Exodus 34, I'll pick it up in verse 4. So Moses carved two tablets of stone like the first, and early in the morning he went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, taking the two stone tablets with him. The Lord came down in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in kindness and faithfulness, extending kindness to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he does not remit all punishment. That visits the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children upon the third and fourth generations. Notice there isn't a description of God there. There are characteristics of God, but there's no description of him. And Moses doesn't look at him. That's in contradistinction to all of the pagan worship where you've got idols and all that kind of stuff. And in fact, a kind a of blinding flash of the obvious, studying this this afternoon, go to Psalm 115. Beginning up at verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name bring glory for the sake of your love and your faithfulness. Let the nations not say, where now is their God when our God is in heaven and all that he wills, he accomplishes. In other words, when they ask, where is your God? What they are looking for is an idol. What they're expecting is a statue somewhere. There's got to be somewhere where this God is. It can also mean, and that's one of those double things, why has your God not acted on your behalf? Things are not going well for you. Where is he? Sort of like the trash talk that was going on with Elijah against the priests of Baal. Remember when Elijah was contesting with the priests of Baal, he said, call out, where is he? Perhaps he's relieving himself. You know, just trash talk, literally. So this, where is their God, can be taken either way. It can be taken as trash talk, or it can be taken as, where's your idols? Aren't you guys normal folks that have gods like everybody else does? Now, when we get to the prophets of Baal, you all remember your history. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom have separated. The northern kingdom has set up golden calves at Bethel and Dan. And King Ahab has married Jezebel, who is the daughter of a king of Sidon or Tyre, you know, somewhere up in Lebanon. And she's brought down a whole squad of priests of Baal with her. And she has replaced worship of Yehovah with the worship of Baal. In the northern kingdom. And understand people are easily confused, so you have a necessity for rain in that part of the world. Baal is the god of rain and storms. When you need rain for your crops and all that kind of stuff, Baal's the one you talk to. And here's this gal and, and the king who are talking to this god. So who do we talk to? Because one of the characteristics of Jehovah is he doesn't always say yes. So going back to the Exodus passage, he's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in kindness and faithfulness, extending kindness to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, he does not remit all punishment, but visits the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children upon the third and fourth generations. So this God is not a single-function sugar daddy. You need rain, you go talk to Baal. You need crops, you talk to Persephone. I'm switching between Canaanite and Greeks because I don't know who the Canaanite goddess of fertility is, and I don't care. Um, But the point is, you had celestial bureaucrats who were responsible for the various segments of nature that had influence over the things that people need. And so the thing that is different about Yehovah is he is one, the chad. He's not a bureaucrat. He's the one who set everything in motion. He's the one who sustains everything. But he is not in the whirlwind. He is not in the fire. He is not in the storm. So everything that you want to pray about you pray to one deity, Jehovah. And without throwing rocks at the Catholic Church, what you have in the Catholic Church are saints. And saints have sort of replaced pagan deities in that they have become celestial bureaucrats. You need to travel, you want Saint Christopher. You lose something, you want Saint Anthony. Understand that the mindset is very similar to paganism. And you've got statues and you've got places you go and you want to talk to about this, you go to this statue, this saint, you pray to her, him, it, whatever, and that's how you direct your prayers. It's exactly the same mindset. In the Old Testament, there isn't any theology per se, not like we consider theology. There's simply praise and accounting of how God has intervened in the world in Israeli life. Similarly, prophets speak on his behalf. Sometimes he speaks for himself. At Sinai, he spoke for himself. Other times, he sends prophets to speak for him. But in no case is there an image, and in no case has anybody seen his face. Very different. When Kugel was talking about pagan belief, he made a very interesting comment. He says, pagans believed in God the same way you believe in atoms and molecules. Anybody here got any direct experience with atoms and molecules? No. What you're doing is you're trusting some priest, a scientist, who is telling you about it and telling you that's what makes things work, Right. It's exactly the same thing that was going on with the pagan gods back then. They had no more seen their gods than you have seen hydrogen molecules. You just take on faith that they exist, and you take on faith that they behave the way the priests say they behave, which is exactly the same way that the people back then accepted the pantheon of pagan gods. It just was. Everybody knew that if you wanted rain, you prayed to Baal, just like everybody knows today that we have a carbon footprint, whatever that means. And I thought that that was a really good analogy on why people believe in pagan gods, because they had grown up in a society when that was the explanation for everything. You know, as little children, when you had a storm, and mother or father or grandfather said, oh, all is either blessing us with rain, or he's angry and we're being flooded, or whatever," it's just that's what you grew up with. Just like you have grown up with, all you know, you're breathing oxygen, and if the oxygen combines with this and that, you know, you've never seen any of that stuff. You're taking it on the same basis. That's what people do. Oh. As you're reading Psalm 29, which is, listen, the Lord is in strength. Listen, the Lord is in splendor. It's very much like a couple of small boys standing beside a train track and having a train come by. And it shakes everything, and it's like, wow, look at that. In fact, some little boys never recover, and they become model railroaders and engineers the rest of their lives. But no matter how many times the freight train comes by, ooh, that's an event. And so the Psalms here are very much descriptions of those kinds of events. The attitude of the one writing the Psalm here, where he's saying, listen, the Lord is and so forth. It's very much a, ooh, here comes the freight train. And again, I don't mean... In any way to diminish what the psalm says, what I'm trying to do is get you into an understanding of the emotion and understanding that the people at that time would have had. And just like small boys never get tired of watching freight trains go by, the people of the Bible never get tired of the power of the Lord being manifest in their world. So that's Psalm 29. And again, what I find him very good at, is transporting you as best we can with our modern mindset into the mindset of the people who wrote and to whom these scriptures were written. What would it have meant to the people then? How would they have seen it? And the thing about this book that I like very much is he does a very good job of that or at least he does a good job of convincing me that he's doing that. We're not back there so we don't know if he's entirely accurate, but that's his thing. He's written a number of books, all of which try and bring you back to what the scriptures meant to those to whom they were given. And I hope that I have in some way been able to sort of bring you into something like that because scripture is both an explicit and a subtle rejection and renunciation of paganism. Certainly it's an explicit rejection. God says through Moses you'll have no other gods before me and that that's pretty clear but then you get to something like Elijah in the cave where you have all of these large violent meteorological things happening around him and it explicitly says every time but God was not in that that's an explicit rejection of paganism because pagans believe that gods are in those things And I find this a really good book to read because he has insights like that. And he freely admits that what he's trying to do with his translations is he's trying to evoke the understanding that would have been current when it was written. (laughs) ¶¶